This is a cup of biodiversity with Julia and Tobias. Hello everybody, welcome to today's cup of biodiversity. There are strong voices saying that if we really want to avert the consequences of climate change and stop the loss of biodiversity, we do not get around indigenous people and their traditional knowledge. This is also what our guest today, Jennifer Tauli-Corpus, is saying. She's a lawyer and an advocate for indigenous people's rights and herself a member of the Kankana A. Igorot people of the mountain province in the Philippines. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome to A Cup of Biodiversity. Hi, thanks very much for having me. As you know, here at the podcast, we look at who our guests are and, and what their journey has been to work on issues related to, to biodiversity. And so your own life journey began in a mountainous region in the Philippines. Can you tell us a little bit what that region is like and what it was like growing up there? Well, it was a it's a very mountainous region here in the Philippines. It's um, one of the major mountain ranges in the north, northern part of the Philippines. And it's a very close community. I sometimes reflect back on my days in, in the mountains with my brothers, and we just wonder how we never got into accidents because we were four or five. We'd go to the river and we never drowned. We didn't drown. We didn't know how to swim. But then we realized it was all of these community members watching over us because um, I just heard from my parents later in life that the whole community takes child raising very seriously. So that's that's the kind of community that I grew up in. I read in one of your uh, an article, the interviews with you, you call yourself a mountain girl. Is this correct? I do. And I realized this when I was uh, when I went off to high school in the capital. And it's uh, it's very flat there. It's a coastal capital, as most capitals are. And, you know, it was it's a, it was a bit sad. And then I got into mountaineering and then I just it just made me happy seeing the mountains, seeing the greenery. So I just said, I'm a mountain girl. Some of my classmates coming from the islands, they'd be happy when they see the sea. But I was happy seeing the mountains. <laughs> So this kind of might be in your blood, the mountains, also where you grew up, at least partially grew up. But now let me look at the mountain girl, Jennifer, and at what point the mountain girl, Jennifer, became active on a global level. I mean, you have joined the World Intellectual Property Organization, for example. You have been and are still participating in, in global climate change and biodiversity fora. But so what was your motivation to go from the mountains to the peaks of the global policy negotiations. That's very poetic, Tobias. Well, I already mentioned that I had to go to the capital to get my education. As you know, in many indigenous communities, we don't have good schools. Um, sometimes uh, in the more remote areas, they don't have schools at all. So while in university, I, I got a scholarship to the science high school. And really, when I got to college, I really wanted to be a doctor. So I took up molecular biology and biotechnology. And when I was doing my thesis, my um, advisor, you know, she goes, aren't you from the uh, an indigenous tribe? And I said, yes. Uh, would you like to collect blood from all of your relatives and then we can study the blood? And I say, I, I have to ask my mother first. And it, it just so happened that my mother was an activist. She was at, uh, at the Rio Earth Summit. Um, she was a very activist on indigenous people's rights at the global level. So it sort of just flowed naturally from there. 
because unfortunately, I never ended up being a doctor. I went into law instead. But of course, my roots, my strong science background stayed with me. And when I started working for an indigenous people's organization that was engaged in the Convention on Biological Diversity, they said, oh, there are negotiations ongoing on access and benefit sharing. Would you like to join? That, that's how I got my start. And, you know, I was assigned that particular portfolio because of my background in molecular biology. So just to finish the story, I, in the end, I had to decline the offer of my thesis advisor to study the blood of my indigenous people, because at the time there was also this huge outcry against the Human Genome Project. It, it's such a moving story, so so shocking um, and and so telling uh, at the same at the same time. And it and yeah, and I guess it really kind of drew a path to to the issues you're you're working on today. I'm just wondering, as you work on these issues at a level where most of us don't have any real experience with either biodiversity or the people that have always, the communities that have lived with biodiversity over the centuries, what do you think is the biggest misconception that you hear or the biggest issues with the, the way that these issues are approached at an international level? Well, maybe the biggest misconception in all of these global processes one of the least contentious things about indigenous peoples is their need for capacity building. We barely get any argument when we talk about capacity building for indigenous peoples. Um, so I think one of the misconceptions is that indigenous peoples are primitive um, and very backward. Uh, in fact, during the course of my work, I have discovered that indigenous peoples are quite sophisticated and there are many you know, who recognize that they need to share what they know with the world and that they can do it in very sophisticated ways, working with scientists, for example. So for me, that's a big misconception. Okay, so we jump in right, but I try to introduce the audience to that we're going to talk about traditional knowledge. But how can this knowledge, if you try to think in practical terms, how can this knowledge be used? How does this work? Well, there is sophisticated knowledge among indigenous peoples that comes from their maintained and close interaction with their environment. So many indigenous peoples are still very much in tune with the human and non-human elements of their surroundings, right? And so because of this close relationship, there's very deep knowledge about the uses of certain plants, even certain animals within the community. So this sophisticated knowledge, which is, you know, with increasing urbanization, it's it's becoming lost, right? And in our experience, this knowledge has been called on or has been tapped by scientists uh, that want to work with natural products or products that can be derived from biological diversity. Um, an example from my former university, a professor in the molecular biology department where I studied, she went to a community of Aita. This is one of the most well-known, I would say, indigenous groups in the Philippines. And during the course of her interactions, she discovered that there was this snail that could be used within the community to numb, you know, if something's uh, painful, they use the bite of the snail to numb like an anesthetic. It was very interesting because they discovered that the snail had venom, but not powerful enough to kill. So it had important medical applications. No? So those are the kinds of interactions. And we hear lots of stories, for example, in Australia, when someone was bitten by a crocodile, lots of crocodiles there. 
and a tribesman and an Aboriginal person comes and you know looks at the wound, picks a leaf from somewhere and squeezes it onto the wound, and it stops the bleeding. No, so it's this kind of sophisticated knowledge that comes from the close interaction of indigenous peoples with nature, and it's something that apparently is valuable. And it's something that indigenous peoples would actually like to share with the world. Great. Just to really follow up on this, the the value, and I, in that sense, I like the the definition of the CBD that talks not only about knowledge but practices, innovations, and and really to describe the range of information that can be useful in in so many different ways, uh, right? Because you gave examples about you know kind of commercial products, but I think just in terms of our understanding of ecosystems, of, of how things connect is so important. And we keep hearing about science reconfirming something that people had known for centuries. So it's, it takes us all of this time to come back to this idea of how it's all connected. And, and I'm just wondering, thinking about, you know, the, the post-2020 global biodiversity framework, which will be the framework in which, you know, actions by governments, private sector, universities will be framed in the next, you know, decade. What are the opportunities, but also the risks that you see in really recognizing and harnessing this knowledge for conservation, regeneration of biodiversity? The opportunity, I think, is something that we can learn from in the, well, the current strategic plan. One of the recognitions is that not working with traditional knowledge and Indigenous peoples enough was a major missed opportunity. And, you know, as we are crafting the next strategic plan, the post-2020 framework, it's important to, to, you know, grab the opportunity of um, working alongside Indigenous peoples. Um, you're, you're completely right about, you know, the knowledge of relationships at the micro as well as the macro level within Indigenous communities. And I just recall, you know, in when I was growing up in the village, there were some parts, you know, within the forest that were uh, off limits, no? Taboo areas. And then when the scientists, um, you know, we are not allowed to go there. And the reason was the spirits are there. They might um, get mad at you. You know, there was a lot of folklore surrounding it. But upon closer study by scientists, they found that it was a place where the, the animals sort of went to, to give birth. And it's uh, usually a place that's a watershed. So it's really ecologically important, no? And I've heard recent studies in the university where I teach at, the language also of indigenous peoples provides important clues where a certain plant is abundant, where um, certain where people shouldn't build because uh, the name in, in, in the, the indigenous name means that it's a it's a basin, you know, it floods when when people go there. So there are a lot of these elements in indigenous traditional knowledge and practice that could guide some of the ways we approach ecosystems. This is why, you know, in the post-2020 process, the advocacy of Indigenous peoples is, you know, we're not just about traditional knowledge. We're also about judicious management of the ecosystem of resources. And we're also about, you know, living examples of sustainable use. So you have been, how long have you been participating in the international or global negotiations so far? Well, my first ABS meeting was in 2005 in Bangkok. Okay, so it's been 16, 17 years now. So this is quite a long time. If you look back right now 
at 16 years and you're sitting there and you try to convey the message that traditional knowledge is essential to save biodiversity. And if I understand correctly, you also advocate for the rights of indigenous peoples, of course. And when you look back now, was it worth it? You know, that's a hard question. Was it worth it? I see some of the advances um, in perception of indigenous peoples now. And, you know, that makes it worth it. The IPTES global assessment, for example, many recent scientific studies show that indigenous territories uh, preserve biodiversity much better than even protected areas. You know, you've heard the phrase about indigenous territories being islands of diversity um, within a sea of degradation because of the much lower rate of biodiversity loss in indigenous territories. And I think, you know, just for the world to get to that sort of view, and it's an accepted view because this is the IPES, it's an intergovernmental panel of scientists, right? So um, that somehow makes it worth it. And then you have all these new studies that show that in places where indigenous tenure is strong, biodiversity thrives better. And of course, there are the little victories like all of this um, guidelines coming out about the need to repatriate traditional knowledge, the need for social and cultural impact assessments alongside environmental impact assessments. So that has helped in many communities, in many countries. And, you know, that's good. Let me focus specifically uh, as a follow-up question on the idea of, of the negotiations on, on access and benefit sharing. I know that you were involved. Uh, you've, I, I know you were in Bangkok, which one of the preparatory meetings, but you also were actively engaged in the, in the final negotiations to, to the Nagoya Protocol. Looking back now, we have 12 years of, of the Nagoya Protocol. How do you look at uh, access and benefit sharing and, and what has and what hasn't been achieved? In 2010, when the Nagoya Protocol was adopted, we were quite happy because the Nagoya Protocol represented a step forward from how the convention itself regarded indigenous peoples and traditional knowledge. Whereas before, you know, the acknowledgement was that indigenous peoples own their traditional knowledge. They must give their approval before it can be used. Now you have in the Nagoya Protocol recognizing that in certain instances, indigenous peoples actually also own the resource. So that was a huge step for us. And it was good because you had provisions there in capacity building and others. But the issue now is where are the benefits? They haven't been flowing. And one of the the holes, I think, is because of the advances in science allow um, scientists to do their research differently. Um, I don't know if you want me to touch on DSI yet, but um, but one of the leakages, one of the biggest loopholes is the fact that um, the Nagoya Protocol was built upon a model of physical access to resources. So, you know, the typical a scientist comes into a country, wants to collect some plants, and then asks for permission, then brings the plants home and does their they do their research. But now it's so easy to sequence. When I was uh, sequenced the genetic material of plants and animals, even humans. When I was in university, that technology was not available yet. So, you know, understandably, the model in 2010 was different. But now it's so easy to share the digital information, information on genetic material digitally. And so we think that's one of the reasons why benefits have not been flowing. Yes. Great. See, Tobias and I are both fighting to ask the next question because we find it so interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you about 
what what does benefit sharing look like right there's a lot of discussion about what what are benefits how should they be shared what is the what is the vision of a world in which benefit sharing take place i'd i'd be curious to to know what you think all right so i mentioned earlier that there is a perception of indigenous peoples as being primitive and backward but the the truth is most indigenous communities have been touched by by modernity by um by mainstream society and the needs change no whereas before we had a culture of sharing it was important for us we saved seeds and um from time to time we share them with our neighbors same with animal species sometimes uh, there's sharing that happens um and we we're happy to share no but things progress the needs of some indigenous communities uh change and they recognize the value of education and education sending children to school usually in the capital it takes money you know so there is a need for cash as well in many communities so what does benefit sharing look like although we're happy to share we would be happier with a recognition of the historic role that indigenous peoples have had um in preserving the biodiversity and well of course indigenous peoples and local communities and so benefit sharing could take um non-monetary and also monetary forms no um monetary could be any product derived from the from research on genetic resources that come from indigenous peoples or that were found through the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples can be shared back to the community without um you know without the the community having to purchase them so that's in in a way non-monetary recognition also of the source that could be a benefit we do not discount the need of um some communities to be compensated in a monetary way so those are the different types of benefits that indigenous peoples have expressed that they would like to see so this brings me to the legal aspect of it you know when you look at the legal sphere and you are a lawyer right by training so um how do you see on the global level the legal the legal frame for the benefit of indigenous people is there still ways to go what is needed i was also part of the informal advisory group on dsi um and we were very lucky because i was alongside um five other indigenous representatives so we were lucky that the group um accepted one representative per indigenous uh socio cultural region recognized by the united nations permanent forum on indigenous issues um and i can tell you there's huge divergence in the views so i think the legal system the global legal system uh, framework at the moment is not responsive enough to the needs of indigenous people so we hear very good suggestions in fact there that's an recognized as an area of convergence is the need to recognize the historic role of indigenous peoples and local communities in preserving biodiversity which is the source of all of these sequences uh, genetic material genetic resources and so there's recognition that benefits should be shared back to indigenous peoples but the sticking point is how do we do it how do we do it it's so difficult to design a model especially when it's been open access till now so naturally there's resistance from scientists and to a certain extent i understand that having come from a scientific background myself um but at the same time i think we really need to find a solution so that you know it's not the wild west you know it's not free for all yeah just to finish off this uh, fantastic conversation jennifer i wondered if you'd tell us a little bit more about where you're working now uh, it's a nonprofit called niatero tell us a little bit more about what it aims to do your work there i'd love to hear it 
Yes, so I'm with an organization called Niatero. I am the senior global policy and advocacy lead. That's a mouthful. And I basically lead the work at the global level, global policy level. So attending CBD meetings, climate change meetings, meetings at WIPO that deal with traditional knowledge. And the goal is to strengthen indigenous guardianship. So once we get enough recognition at the global level that indigenous guardianship has led to all these wonderful products, all of these wonderful systems that preserve uh, the environment and all these wonderful systems that sequester carbon, um, the hope is that a strong legal framework that recognizes indigenous rights would be put in place and that the, this would be implemented at the national level and it would be felt by indigenous peoples at the community level. So that that's that's my role. It's not much different from what I've been doing for 16 years. Um, but now it's uh, in a way it's uh, more global because we work in Amazonia, in the Pacific and in the boreal forest of Canada. And we're really trying, you know, to get policymakers to unsilo in a way, you know, because many of the solutions that are being proposed um, separately for climate change and separately for biodiversity, they're actually the same actions within indigenous communities. So that's our mission um, to help indigenous guardianship along. You are an inspiring person, and I think a lot of the uh, people from the audience will benefit from what you just said because you are so much. You're an expert, you're a lawyer, you have scientific background, you're a member of, a, of indigenous people, you work on the policy level, and you also make sure that what is decided on the policy level or should be decided is being implemented. So thank you very much for today's exchange. I personally learned a lot. And now just let me tell you, uh, your foundation is based in Seattle in the US. So by coincidence, I'm going to be there in October, staying two weeks for vacation. So if you are going to be there, well, I'm going to invite you to a cup of biodiversity. Thank you. That was an amazing outro. Jennifer, Excellent. thank you so much. Uh, I'm just going to, on behalf of everyone, just thank you and let you go get some rest and have a safe uh, drive to Manila.